Welcome to the second episode of the podcast, A History of Literary Criticism. This week's episode outlines Plato's criticism, including social and historical context, his opinions from books 2, 3 and 10 of The Republic, and the implications of his work today. A script of the episode with references is available on the website www.ahistoryofliterarycriticism.wordpress.com Episode 2. Plato. Historical and Literary Context. Plato was born in Athens in 5th century BC to a wealthy family. By the time of his birth, Athens had developed into a vivid city-state. The city had embraced democracy under the leadership of Pericles, who had died just prior to Plato's birth. Pericles led Athens during the so-called Golden Age, a time during which the city operated as an imperial power and cultural hub. This newly found democracy centralised the body of the polis, adult male citizens who were able to vote. While approximate figures number these men at only 40,000 out of the city's total population of 300,000, the ideals of community decision-making, individual sacrifice and the public good were rising to prominence. During the Golden Age, the great tragedians such as Euripides and Sophocles established Greek tragedy as an important art form. These plays were an explicitly social event and contributed to social unity. Storylines were often taken from well-known myths and performances were staged during public festivals. One of these festivals was called the Great Dionysia. Held in Athens in March, all of the city's citizens would attend and tributes brought from throughout Greece. As part of this festival, a theatre competition would be held, with performances being judged according to their ability to uphold and represent Athenian ideals. The selection of these plays was heavily censored, performing a propagandising function. Adone Longo has emphasised Greek theatre's social nature. Quote, The theatrical event in ancient Athens was a public event par excellence. The Athenians' dramatic performances were not conceivable as autonomous productions in some indifferent point in time or space but were firmly located within the framework of a civic festival at a time specified according to the community calendar and in a place expressly reserved for this function. Indeed, the social function highlighted here is intertwined with the plays themselves, informing Greek tragedy's structure, stage directions and character tropes. This period of social and cultural development preceded Plato's birth, around 425 BC. By that time, a canon of authoritative literary works had been established, which continued to influence various aspects of Athenian life. 
as well as dramatizing and reinforcing social norms and values during the public festivals, literary works were now used as an explicitly educational tool, both to teach reading and writing, and develop a sense of morality and civic duty. However, Pericles' death was soon followed by social upheaval. The Peloponnesian War began in approximately 431 BC and lasted for around 25 years, ending in Athens' defeat. As with many critics living in a time of war, an authoritarian impulse can be discerned in Plato's work. In this context of social uncertainty and literary authority, then, it is unsurprising that Plato very much focuses on the social life of literature in his work, The Republic. The Republic is Plato's best known work and was written around 375 BC. The work is written in the form of a Socratic dialogue. Each chapter or book contains a fictional conversation held by the famous philosopher Socrates a great friend of Plato's family who had been executed in 399 BC. At times, Plato's Socrates is sarcastic and self-contradictory, resulting in a work which evades systematic understanding and clear rules. However, throughout the Republic, Socrates ruminates on which fundamental principles should govern the ideal city-state the role of philosophers and various forms of government. These principles underscore many of the literary principles discussed in the Republic. Literary criticism in the Republic. The earlier chapters of the Republic detail Socrates' attempt to define the principles which should form an ideal community. In books two and three, Socrates converses with Glaucon and Adamantus, and the three men discuss the justice and education systems. At this time, Greek education was divided into only two parts, physical and cultural education. Socrates justifies the importance of consideration of literature by highlighting that children are told stories before they begin physical exercise, and such tales therefore play an important role in their educational development. In these chapters, a didactic appreciation of literature is clearly established. Socrates says, quote, The point is, my dear Adamantus, that if the young men of our community hear this kind of thing and take it seriously, rather than regarding it as despicable and absurd, they're hardly going to regard such behaviour as despicable in human beings like themselves, and feel remorse when they also find themselves saying or doing these or similar things. Instead, they won't find it at all degrading to be constantly chanting laments or dirges for trivial incidents, and they won't resist doing so. Here, 
Socrates clearly establishes the relationship between literature and its audience. Literature should provide children with an example of how to behave. Therefore, the stories which children are told must be defined very clearly, and mothers must be told which stories are appropriate for children. While stories which are untrue must obviously be banned, Socrates also asserts that some stories which are true are not appropriate for educational purposes. Any stories which depict people committing crimes or quarrelling are not appropriate, Socrates argues, as these will only encourage children to commit crimes or quarrel. It's also important that future guardians of the city are religious. Therefore, no god can be depicted as imperfect, as this may encourage disrespect. The mythical tales which were very common in the classical Greek tragedies would all be censored under Socrates' rules. These didactic principles continue into Book 3. As children should be courageous, no literature should be allowed wherein people are fearful. Children should not fear death, and therefore Hades, the god of death, should not be depicted as a terrifying figure. Future rulers should have self-discipline. Therefore, no character should be depicted as lazy. No one should enjoy wine or excessive amounts of food. Only art which represents goodness should be allowed. These books highlight the interaction between Plato's criticism and his broader philosophical work. Fundamental to these literary principles are the values which should administer the city-state. Individual preferences and freedom were to be sacrificed for the sake of the city-state and its ideal functioning. However, underpinning Plato's position in books two and three is also his dedication to realism particularly a clear, direct relationship between the individual and the work of art. The principles outlined here rely on a singular possible interpretation of art, and the justification for this relationship is discussed in more detail in Book 10 of The Republic. While books two and three outline the type of literature which Socrates finds acceptable, all poetry has been banned by book 10. Here, Socrates has outlawed all, quote, representational poetry, as it, quote, deforms its audience's minds. In this book, Socrates launches a scathing attack on mimesis and any attempt at realistic representation in literature, as well as the damaging effect of poetry on human minds. Socrates initially highlights the difference between reality and appearance. While a real object has a function, a representation only appears to perform that function. Any conception that a bed in a painting will provide a good night's sleep will be proven unfortunately incorrect. 
Furthermore, Socrates argues, the only way to measure something is to decide whether or not it is useful, as this would mean that it is performing its function and therefore is closest to its ideal form, the form initially conceived by God. To illustrate, Socrates compares the knowledge of an object's user, manufacturer and representer. The person best placed to determine the functionality of an object is the person who uses it. This person is most knowledgeable about its proximity to its ideal form. When a new object is created, the person who uses it will speak to the manufacturer and describe the qualities that they need in that object. A successful manufacturer, therefore, will know the desirable qualities in an object, even if they do not use it themselves. They have the knowledge without direct experience. However, the representer has none of this knowledge. They have neither used the object nor spoken with anyone who has used it in order to make the representation. In this way, Socrates concludes that representers are ignorant of the subjects they represent and therefore such representations have little value. Indeed, rather than being educational, Socrates further asserts that poetry has a particularly damaging effect on its audience. The most important functions of the human mind, Socrates argues, are the rational operations, logical and mathematical calculations, as these will bring us closer to an understanding of truth. Such rational behaviour also defines that we must restrain ourselves in the face of intense emotions such as grief or anger, as these emotions are likely to override rationality. However, Socrates argues that these intense emotions are best suited for poetic representation. Quote, now, Although the petulant part of us is rich in a variety of representable possibilities, the intelligent and calm side of our characters is pretty well constant and unchanging. This makes it not only difficult to represent, but also difficult to understand when it is represented, particularly when the audience is the kind of motley crowd you find crammed into a theatre because they're simply not acquainted with the experience that's being represented to them. Socrates argues that poets appeal to the irrational part of people's minds, for which they are then lauded for making people feel such intense emotions. Emotions which, according to Plato's Socrates, should be banned. Sadness, sex, humour, violence, all of these inclinations are frequently the subject of the tragedies and yet are not conducive to a functioning society. Plato Today 
While Plato's writing may seem extreme, his opinions on censorship and the social function of literature permeate current public opinion and attitudes towards literature. While censorship may be associated with authoritarian regimes, and Plato's writings certainly seem authoritarian, literary works are constantly challenged to this day. The American Library Association publishes a list of the most challenged books in the USA, and many of the reasons provided suggest that Plato's principles are still alive and well. All of the works on the list feature adolescent protagonists or are categorised as children's literature. Four of the works on the list were challenged or banned for encouraging behaviour deemed socially undesirable, such as alcohol consumption, drug use, underage sex or disruptive behaviour. While two of the works were banned for their, quote, religious viewpoint, four of the books on the list were challenged for containing LGBT plus content. The prominence of young adult literature on the banned books list highlights that Plato's interest in the literary education of young people remains a concern today. Furthermore, the justifications provided for banning books suggests that similar principles, particularly in terms of appropriate behaviour and religious beliefs, remain influential in contemporary society. Plato's criticism of mimesis has a more complicated position today. As discussed last week, an expressive understanding of literature contradicts mimesis almost entirely, and the acceptance of subjectivity in literature has become mainstream. Formal literary innovation, including a focus on the language and structure of literature, serves to detach works from reality while the now influential position of the artist personalises literature and goes a long way to make criticisms such as Plato's obsolete. However, embedded in Plato's literary criticism is an understanding of how literature functions in society, and this function is maintained and criticised in many strands of more contemporary literary theory. A number of Marxist critics have highlighted this function of literature. For example, in 1940, George Orwell wrote a scathing essay entitled Boys Weeklies, in which he criticised this genre of young adult periodical, particularly because readers believed them to be real. Orwell argues that such literature inspires class envy and serves to entrench the inequality of the British class system. A similar criticism is found in Kate Millett's work, Sexual Politics, published in 1969. Endeavouring to reveal the political structures of male dominance, Millett, quote, attempted to illustrate this first of all by giving attention to the role which concepts of power and domination play in some contemporary literary depictions of sexual activity itself. Millet's work was particularly influential 
in that it drew attention to the role played by literature in reinforcing gender inequality. Racial inequality is the focus of Toni Morrison in her work Playing in the Dark, Whiteness and the Literary Imagination. In this 1992 work of literary criticism, Morrison highlights the extent to which the Eurocentric tradition of American literature constructs what Morrison terms an Africanist presence, in which black characters signify a range of threats to white supremacy and establish a number of stereotypes about black people which reinforce racial discrimination in wider society. These Marxist, feminist and critical race theories, then, both uphold and critique Plato's understanding of literature. These works support the social influence of literature which Plato outlined, suggesting that its function today is not so different from Athens in the 5th century BC. Literature, it seems, still plays a role in determining social organisation and behaviour. Similarly, Orwell, Millet and Morrison criticised literary traditions for constructing false images of the wealthy, women and black characters. These works, then, mirror Plato's criticism of literature as being detached from reality. However, such misrepresentation would surely result from the practical application of Plato's principles, wherein literary depictions are determined and controlled by those in power. Thank you for listening to this episode of A History of Literary Criticism. If you can, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast channel. Any feedback would be greatly appreciated. Similarly, if you have a suggestion of a theorist who could be included on the show, please let me know. The email address for this and anything else is a history of litcrit at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at litcritpodcast. Next week's episode will be dedicated to Aristotle's literary criticism. Some suggested reading will be available on the website, which might be useful as preparation. <laughs>